folks. Welcome to Hashtag Finance, CSE-sponsored podcast. Um, the deep pleasure to be joined today with none other than Alex Tapscott, arguably the most famous guest yet. This is show 25. So thank you, Alex, for joining us at the quarter century mark of this podcast. It's uh, We've run into each other a few times over the past few years, um, you know, working the blockchain scene. You were kind of the guy. Um, you were just speaking this morning at a conference, and uh, you just recently hosted a giant conference called Blockchain Revolution Global. That's right. Um, maybe just go back to the origins of you in blockchain and, and how you came into this world and, and why you believe in it so much still two or three years into the game. Yeah, absolutely. So I first learned about this space in 2013, 2014. At the time, I was working at Canaccord Genuity in the institutional uh, equity sales group. Right. And um, at first, it was Bitcoin. It wasn't blockchain. Blockchain hadn't really entered the vernacular. There was this new cryptocurrency. And I think a lot of people were wondering what exactly it was, why it was worth anything, uh, who was using it. Um, and frankly, a lot of those questions still uh, people have today. But at the time, I became very interested in it because I was doing a lot of work on the investment banking side with some fintech companies, some payment processing companies. And I was also looking at my own industry and sort of seeing... Um, how there were lots of inefficiencies in how, you know, the equity market is structured, how clearing and settling works. And I began to think, um, you know, could Bitcoin be part of the solution? And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that while Bitcoin was a big innovation, it was actually the underlying technology of the blockchain that held a lot of potential. Um, so this was now 2014. And sort of by luck, my dad and I were on a father-son ski trip in uh, Mont-Tremblant. And he was asking me, you know, what are you doing these days? What are you interested in? Um, what's new at work? And I said, actually, I'm really look looking at this uh, Bitcoin and this blockchain thing. And he said, well, that's interesting because I'm looking at it as well. Uh, he was running a research project at the University of Toronto at the time called the uh, Global Solution Networks Project. And he basically recruited me to write a paper. So that um, became my first foray into this space on the research side, which is I wrote a paper called the Bitcoin Governance Network. And that so, so most, most father-son relationships... My dad maybe would ask me to help him mow the lawn or something. Right, your, your yeah. dad actually helped, wanted you to write a paper about... Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the same guy <laughs> who gave me um, my own URL as my birthday present on my yeah. ninth birthday, you know? So um, I, I have my own URL. I wanted a PlayStation, but what are you going to do? So... Um, yeah, so that became the first thing that we did together. And look, I, I'd never worked with my dad in any sort of substantive way, and we didn't really know what was going to happen. But we started small, and we worked from there. And to make a long story short, that research became the basis for the book we wrote together, Blockchain Revolution. So in uh, spring of 2015, I quit my job at Canaccord to write a book, uh, having never written a book, and uh, with no real idea of what I was going to do afterwards. But how, did you, how did you feel? Like, how did you feel suddenly quitting your job? That the Canaccord obviously you probably did pretty well there. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a great institution. We do a lot of business with Canaccord yeah. at the CSE, but uh, you know to just leave that and then go on this adventure. What was your gut feeling that drove you to do that? Well, honestly, um, I, you know, I was 28 years old uh, when I made the decision. Um, I was director of institutional equity sales. I completed my C CFA examination. I was covering yeah. a lot of the biggest institutions in, in Toronto and, and New York at the time, and I was. Um, you know, doing all, all really well, I think, yeah. you know. Um, but then I sort of realized 
basically, you know, is this going to be my career or is this my first job? And mm. I decided that it was going to be my first job and I just wanted to do something different. It's nothing against Canaccord. I just was ready for a move. Um, and this seemed like a great opportunity to basically absorb myself in an area where I was deeply fascinated, uh, really passionate, and um, in a technology that I was pretty convinced at the time was going to be disruptive. I had no idea what I was going to do after, how it was all going to play out, but I knew that, you know, it's like um, Sheryl Sandberg said uh, when she was offered a job at Google, which is that when somebody offers you a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask <laughs> which seat. You just get on the just rocket ship. get on ship. the ship, man. Yeah, so I got on the rocket ship. And, um, you know, fast forward a few years and, and here we are. It's been a fascinating journey. Um, not to get too bogged down in the history, but basically the book came out in the spring of 2016, right, as a lot of people outside of technology were trying to understand this stuff. And... Uh, it ended up being really successful. It's been translated into 17 languages and counting. Um, it's sold, I think, around a half million copies worldwide. And um, it's really opened up my horizons in terms of what I'm able to do, um, you know, as a, as a leader in this industry. Right. And, and you got to work with your father, which um, clearly you guys are still working together. So it must have been a positive experience on that end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 been really enriching. Um, you know, they say that if, if two people agree on everything, then one of them is unnecessary. So it's not like we're always in sync. In fact, we debate um, things all, all the time. And actually, his background and my background were really conducive to this project because he has, for 30 years, um, been analyzing um, how technology is changing business, the world, society, demographics. Sure. And um, he's arguably the one of the great thought leaders in the world in that subject. But he actually has never worked in financial services. Um, and I had, you know, seven and a half years of uh, sort of investment banking work under my belt and had done some stuff like the CFA. And, and that actually gave me uh, a bit of a different angle on the subject, because ultimately, when it comes to blockchain, we're really talking about assets, value. Mm -hmm. um, and that means thinking about market structure, regulations, um, and, um, you know, how financial services works. And so that was a special um, advantage that we brought to the project. So very complimentary uh, collaboration and very fruitful. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and we're going to talk more about what you guys have learned since you've written the book. But first, a word from our sponsor. Public Entrepreneur Magazine chronicles a bold and exciting new chapter in the Canadian Securities Exchange story. With over 500 public companies and share turnover measured in the billions, we're proud of our reputation as the exchange for entrepreneurs. Public Entrepreneur Magazine gets you up close and personal with a focus on topical stories and interviews with the charismatic entrepreneurs that make things happen. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to get your free copy available on the CSE.com. And we're back with Alex Tapscott. So Alex, when you guys wrote the book, um, the world has changed a lot in the last, let's say, three or four years, especially in the blockchain space. Technology moves at a rapid pace. Yeah. Now, in your first edition of the book, there were predictions made. There were ideas thrown out there that you have since revised. Um, you've probably talked and met with a lot of people that have changed your thinking and evolved your thought around how blockchain in the world will work. Um, I'm curious to know sort of early on what you thought blockchain was going to deliver as a, as a promise and where it's maybe falling flat on its face and how you're going to take those lessons and, and continue to project that into your future um, endeavors? Well, I think that blockchain itself hasn't fallen flat in, in any particular way. Um, I think when it comes to technology, people generally tend to 
overestimate the impact in the short term and yeah. underestimate the impact in the long term. And, um, you know, we, we try not to be futurists. I actually think the future is not something to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. But when you're writing a book, you're trying to give people a sense of what this stuff could mean. Yep. So um, for us, really, what we saw with, with blockchain was the potential to uh, enable a new Internet, basically. So the first era of the Internet that you're familiar with and everyone else who's listening to this is what we call the Internet of Information. Basically, it's the first native digital medium to move information. So we're talking about text, uh, media, music, uh, content, all these kinds of things. And uh, it's had a really profoundly positive uh, impact, I think, on the world. Um, specifically, it's kind of given everyone their own printing press for information, right? Mm -hmm. So if you post something onto Twitter, it's available for all to see. You can make entries into Wikipedia. You can share content on YouTube. Um, everyone can be a publisher. And I think that's a very inter interesting development. But when it comes to things that have value yeah. and things that require scarcity, being able to create copies of it is actually a very bad idea. You know, it's fine for you to have your own printing press for, press for you know, cat videos, but it's not so good to have your own <laughs> printing press for money or for assets. And, um, you know, as a result, even though the Internet changed information industries, we still basically rely on intermediaries to move and store and value assets. OK, right? so let me let me just jump in for a sure. sec, because I think one of the early promises of blockchain was Bitcoin yeah. and the idea that Bitcoin could um, completely disrupt or actually become a viable global currency mm -hmm. um, to this. Which I think is playing out, but go on. You do. OK, so, I mean, right now, if I'm investing in Bitcoin, Am I buying it because it's a hedge against fiat or am I buying it because it's actually a practical utility-based currency that I can go out and actually say, I can get this for this price and it's fair? Yeah. So <clears throat> to look at what money is, basically, money is a, you know, a medium of exchange, right. a store of value, and a unit of account. So when it comes to store of value... I think Bitcoin has proven itself to be a fairly resilient store of value. Over 10 years, it's generally gone, uh, become more valuable and has withstood, withstood many different shocks and, and um, you know, outside forces. Um, as a medium of exchange, um, it is a big breakthrough uh, if you're trying to move money cross-border, if you're trying to move large amounts of money. Um, as a unit of account... Not so much. So basically, you know, you don't go to Starbucks and see that uh, your latte costs 0. 0.000003 Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, you see that it costs three bucks or whatever it is. And um, when it comes to retail payments, it has not succeeded in the way I think a lot of people expected. And in many ways, it's because it's sort of a victim of its own success as the network became more valuable. Um, the cost of doing small value transactions grew. So the question now is... Um, is that a reason why Bitcoin won't succeed or is it an implementation challenge to be overcome? So I think as a digital gold, as a store of value, as, an, as a hedge against fiat, as a generally as an asset class right. that stores value, I think it's proven itself to be quite – to have utility and I think will as a result will grow. As a medium, medium of exchange for retail payments and the, and the like, I think the jury is still out. But I think what's fascinating about it is not so much what Bitcoin's achieved, though it's really important. I think it's – uh, how it sort of sparked people's imaginations mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what the underlying blockchain could do. And, um, you know, today um, there are dozens of really fascinating projects that are looking to harness this technology for assets beyond currencies, um, and particularly in the financial services industry, which I know you want to talk about. Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, we, we've seen a few things happen again. We're looking at this timeline from, let's just say, 2017 or even 2016 or 2015 when you're first edition of the book came out to 
you know, you guys wrote a, uh, um, an updated edition last year, put that out. We saw this transition from crypto into this ICO market, yeah. just to promise all this utility to these end investors to, to buy instead of equity, you know, participation in a company's growth. It, it, it ended up generating billions in investment, primarily in the U S and other mm-hmm. places. Um, oftentimes the companies issuing those coins were, you know, the premise of what they're offering was a white paper and an idea. Yeah. Um, and in exchange, the investor had no protection, uh, prote- um, protection, no secondary market liquidity to trade out of that. Um, it was sort of a vortex. So since then, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, how this has all evolved, but you know, we, we had to take a step back as an industry and go, yeah, this might not work. The regulators definitely don't like it. Investors aren't getting the promise of liquidity. They're not getting any real tangible thing back from the company other than a promise that something may happen and, and return a value at some point. There was no protection. Uh, so now we're seeing the proliferation of this thing, the security token, which right. is, you know, it's not completely decentralized. All of these security tokens will need markets. They will need regulation. They will need... Um, a lot of things that you get from a conventional security, because that's ultimately what will work in today's infrastructure. So I guess from your perspective, have you, have you seen that play out the way I just described? Are you bullish on STO security token offerings as perhaps the new playground that companies can use to, to create value for investors? And maybe some of the ways that we're going to see that uh, value delivered, you know, whether it's the form of royalties or other unique ways of uh, unlocking value. So am I bullish on securities tokens? Absolutely. Okay. Um, but let's just take a step back and, uh, and talk about what, what you um, just walked through. Mm-hmm. So the first wave was cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and there were some imitators that came along with it. The second wave of um, value creation in the blockchain world were uh, protocols, and the most uh, well-known would be Ethereum. Yeah. What happened in 2017 was that there were a lot of, um, I think, entrepreneurs who had been building projects and saw the value that Ethereum had created for holders of the native token and decided that they wanted to take advantage of that as well. So these protocols like Ethereum, um, I think, are useful um, and that's proven out because there are now some applications running on it. Um, what what you're referring to, I think, more are the utility tokens for companies that oftentimes were issuing tokens on the Ethereum blockchain, for example. Sure. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of those projects have, uh, I think, well, first of all, I think some of them, the jury is still out. I don't think it's um, fair to, to write off a startup a year and a half after it was you know, founded and funded. Um, certainly, we wouldn't do that in the private equity venture capital world, and we shouldn't do it in this world. But I also think that a lot of projects that issued so-called utility tokens, basically native digital assets that work inside of an application, shouldn't have done that because the tokens didn't have utility. Uh, what they should have done if they really wanted to raise money was to raise money um, in, in the form of equity. Okay, so- and I'll let you finish your point, yeah. but one thing I wanted to, to ask you, and I was excited to ask this question, was are STOs really the domain of startups? I mean, is is that medium, like you said, just, just go out there and raise money, prove something, and then maybe the security token is actually a better tool for a larger company that has a lot of locked value on a balance sheet? I think it can be both. Okay. Um, I think that um, if you look at the demand that we saw, so there's sort of three different aspects of, of um you know, the uh, market and business development that need to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So is the technology de-risked? So can we actually use the blockchain to issue assets and to raise capital? Well, I think actually the, the ICO boom proved that the underlying technology is sufficiently mature to do that. The second thing is, um, is there 
market development. So are there market participants that can, you know, custody these assets that will buy them, uh, that will want to be participants in this business? And then the third thing is a governance and regulatory infrastructure question, which is, right. are the rules and regulations conducive to these new kinds of assets, uh, or do we need something new? Um, I think that we're probably 50% of the way through stage two. And I think that the question around regulations regulations and governance remains um, still unanswered at this point in time. Um, so I think that if you look at the success of crowdfunding and ICOs, it's pretty clear that startups can access p- global pools of capital and raise you know, re- good amounts of money without having to go to traditional funders like VCs and angels. So that's number one. But I also think, to your point, there are all sorts of captive assets and balance sheets, and there's all sorts of other kinds of asset classes which lack for a liquid market where price discovery and transaction costs where price discovery is easier and where transaction costs are lower. Um, so if you think about royalties, for example, that come off of a mining operation, you know, we're in Canada. There are lots of companies that produce metals and then have byproduct metals. They sell those royalties to streaming companies. Well, wouldn't uh, someone who's interested in, you know, participating in a silver stream like to participate in that as a security token rather than just selling it to a big, you know, you know, oligopolist like Franco Nevada? Or For sure, yeah. I mean, it did potentially lower the cost of capital and, and a lot of other benefits. I mean, if you have a market, you can start, you know, working the participants against each other for better pricing. I mean, yeah, you, absolutely. You know, um, or, or, or to your point, uh, you know, you mentioned real estate. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the market for commercial real estate is kind of trade. It's by definition trade by appointment only because we're talking about multi-billion dollar purchases, right? Locked, yeah. um, so could we create, you know, a marketplace where we can basically, you know, create fractional ownership of, of larger assets? And might that be something that, you know, the owner of class B offices, maybe not, you know, uh, trophy assets, which will get irrational prices, but lots of other commercial real estate could find a better marketplace for and allow, you know, funds and institutions and even individual retail investors to own a piece of those kinds of assets. So I think that there's lots of potential for securities tokens. Um, I think that it's more likely to be that it'll be new issuers and new kinds of assets that embrace this technology versus trying to backwards engineer the cap tables of existing companies. I think that that's a complex uh, pro- project that will involve uh, rewriting a lot of legacy systems and um, convincing a lot of entrenched interests to do something differently, which, as anybody knows, is a challenge or can be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, you know, a company like Amazon, I think about, and they're not dying for investment, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they do have things like Twitch and other assets within their infrastructure where you go, as an investor, I can't be a part of that. I need to buy Amazon stock, which I may not want to be exposed to all these other things. Right. Um, so there's, there's, you know, again, it's got a, what's in it for them. I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. It just seems to me that there's a lot of embedded and locked value in these mega corporations. We're starting to see antitrust uh, activities around the big tech companies in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe at some point, instead of breaking these companies up, there's ways to securitization, security tokens to um, democratize maybe these companies as an investment and, and not necessarily, um, you know, give them too much power. Yeah. Well, maybe. I'm not <laughs> sure. I've never really thought about securities tokens and, and you know, antitrust. Um, that's, Neither have I until I read the paper today. You know, yeah. it's it just Pod, podcast number two. We'll have to. <laughs> I want to come in. Armed with some knowledge on the subject. No, no, no. That's uh, that's just whatever. But yeah. But my the point I was going to make, which is that 
um, you know, we have a fairly narrow definition of what a security is. Um, you know, equities, bonds, these are assets that have been around for centuries, right? And uh, the regulations um, by which they're codified are, you know, 80, 90 years old, um, specifically referring to the SEC Act of 1933. Um, but there's no reason really why a security can't have other sort of functionality, right? So let's take an example, Tesla. So Tesla's um, dealing with a bit of a crunch where they're trying to produce cars um, and their cash position has been dwindling and there's a lot of shorts that are up for blood and whatever. But um, if you believe that there is a market for those cars, people might want to own a share in a new product that Tesla creates or in the company itself, but also gain other kinds of benefits like access to um, uh, charging stations or, you know, free upgrades uh, to their car. Or they may want to accrue a loyalty point for being a customer for a long time, which they could maybe do by owning equity. So you can create tokens that represent real economic interest the way securities traditionally do, a share of a common enterprise with voting rights and everything else. But you can also layer on top of it other functionality because all you're building really is a piece of programming language, right? It's not, you know, share certificates sitting inside of a custodian's filing cabinet. We're talking about malleable uh, digital assets. Yeah, it's not just a piece of paper that says you get a dividend or a coupon. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you have a smart contract which can program entitlements to an end shareholder and potentially have that in a security yeah. that uh, delivers those values real time almost, not, not necessarily pure real time, but you talk about settlement and when people buy a share and then when can they get the entitlement, you could buy a share potentially of a security token tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then if they call a dividend later that day, it's in your bank account next day. Yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the promise, right? Well, that's the just scratching the surface. Just scratching the surface. So yeah, and, and Tesla is a good example. I mean, they're, they're a company that you know, my my opinion, you know, I'm the host, I have opinions. Um, <laughs> this should survive. I mean, they, you know, they have to operate like a corporation, like anyone else and, and, and battle all the same fights. Yeah. And obviously, they have a lot of government incentives and whatnot, but people have pent up demand for their product. They have the top two or three. I just saw a chart the other day. Um, everyone wants those cars. They're yeah. outselling everyone else now in electric. I think they have the top three models. Um, so, so it'd be nice to, to find a way to, to make that work. And, well, uh, another thing too, is let's say that you do believe in the mission sure. and that you are a big fan of Tesla. Um, you know, just like the way a kid would put a Ferrari poster on his wall, you know, hoping someday he might own that car. Um, if you're living in a part of the world where you, there's no Tesla dealership where you can't own the car, where you don't have a hundred thousand dollars, you might still want to participate in the growth of that business. Right. And, um, being able to sell, um, an asset that give you share like an economic right to the company plus some other benefits is something that I think would find enormous traction in all sorts of parts of the world. And to me, that's one of the great benefits of, of tokenization, which is that it um, makes local jurisdictions less relevant. Um, it opens up a global marketplace. And that's important for the world. It's important for entrepreneurship. It basically means if you're an entrepreneur, regardless of where you are in the world, if you've got a good idea and a business plan, you can attract capital to grow that business. So we're in Toronto. We've got this, you know, we're having this renaissance with VC money and all this interest, and that's great. But that didn't yeah. used to always be the case in Toronto. And it's certainly not the case in, you know, Karachi or uh, in Lagos, Nigeria, where there's like an uh, underdeveloped financial system, uh, one that's deeply corrupt and where there's no real venture capital. Capital market. So being able to tap into global markets, I think, is a huge boon and something we should be encouraging. Alex, you mentioned the word global a few times. Okay, so you just hosted a big conference called Blockchain Revolution Global. Um, I had the benefit of speaking at it. It was great. 
Thank you for speaking at it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Very unique presentation. Um, so, so those who weren't there or didn't see the videos, it was a five-sided stage. Yeah. Okay. And it was two days, tons of content. First time I've spoken on a f- one side of a five-sided stage. Um, can you tell me your motivation behind that conference? You know, what it culminated in for you, what it started? And, uh, and then we can talk about the format it, uh, of it in a second because I thought that was cool. We started Blockchain Revolution Global because we saw a gap, basically, in the market. There were a lot of conferences around, um, you know, Bitcoin and crypto, um, and that's fine. And I think there's a real market for that. Uh, but there weren't, there wasn't an event that tried to address blockchain use cases, opportunities, and challenges for business and for government. Um, there have been some enterprise blockchain events, which are hosted by vendors who want to sell their product. But there was nothing that was sort of impartial and tried to give uh, attendees a real sense of how real businesses are using this technology today. And so that's what we sought to achieve. So um, we we developed this five-sided stage almost out of necessity because we had so much content that we wanted to cover, basically. And I think one of the outcomes, one of the learnings from this event is that it should probably be a three-day event, not a two-day event. <laughs> I think we started at 8 a.m. and ended at 6 on day two, which, you know, by the end of day two, people are ready to crack a beer. You're, you're getting scope <laughs> creep now. Scope creep. Watch yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, but we had over 160 speakers from 19 countries, um, you know, representing companies that are enormous, IBM, FedEx, et cetera. Wise key. Um, CSE was there. Yeah, mid-sized, <laughs> um, you know, growth companies like CSE and even startups and governments and not-for-profits. Um, and we wanted to, you know, basically just demonstrate that um, contrary to the prevailing narrative at the time, and this was about two months ago, uh, that... Blockchain wasn't dead. Uh, in fact, that the crypto tail has been kind of wagging the blockchain dog for a bit too long. And once you look past the price, you realize that there's substantive real change happening. Yeah, no, it's certainly um, I actually made that comment in my remarks at the show that it, there's certainly a bit of conviction on your end to. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about conviction and sort of our last point here, but uh, conviction that this isn't just a passing phase. There wasn't just, you know, a blip in the radar. Uh, technology does take time to build and develop and create value um, in the ecosystem for. Yeah. Um, but you got to have the best and brightest minds around to, to do this. And, and one thing we also yeah. uh, wanted to make clear is that even though we think that there's all sorts of utility of blockchain beyond crypto, that crypto assets are actually foundational to a lot of different kinds of use cases. And I think actually for the CSE and for the financial industry, that's the most obvious case in point, which is ultimately you're talking about a platform that allows you to create digital assets um, that are more efficient, malleable, programmable. And that is going to have big changes to the industry. So this isn't about you know distributed ledgers and private blockchains, at least not exclusively. Mm. It's about the whole spectrum of technology. And we wanted to make sure we captured all those different aspects. No, it, it's a big undertaking, but you guys pulled it off. Thank you. Um, okay, last. So one thing I, I, I really wanted to emphasize and I thought was really inspiring about your conference was the awards. And you had um, a young woman there named Alicia, or sorry, Alicia, Alishba. Alishba Imran, sorry. Yeah. Um, and she won an award. And I, I, I wouldn't mind if you just took a moment to kind of explain how people like her are the future of building out this technology and why and, and what her vision was. Well, this young woman, um, girl, almost 15 years old, her yeah. name is Alishba Imran. And um, 
she should make all of us feel really <laughs> guilty about what we have not accomplished in our lives. Now, um, so she's 15 years old. Um, she was actually introduced to us by a friend of mine um, who runs a group called the Knowledge Society, which is an organization in Toronto that works with um, bright young people who are interested in technology and who want to um, basically educate and share their insights. So they do some, you know, stage and media training and, and this kind of um, work. And Alishba did a fireside chat with my dad, Don Tapscott, at the event where she basically talked about her interest in blockchain and, and other kinds of technologies. And the award that she won was actually for an app that she built um, f- that is being used um, in her uh, you know, native, not, I don't think she was born there, but her parents are Pakistani. It's used in Pakistan um, as a way to uh, manage and track um, prescription drugs. So there's a huge pr- counterfeit drug issue in large parts of the world and also in Pakistan. And um, she had developed a system that basically allows for the tracking and tracing of the provenance of drugs from their sort of source all the way to right. the to the finished product when they end up actually, you know, in someone's home. And um, that's one of a half a dozen sort of things that she's doing. Now, I don't think any of these applications are about to, you know, go public on the on the CSE or anywhere else. Um, but the fact that she's doing all of this amazing stuff and she's so interested in this technology made me very uh, optimistic about the future. And it's a, it's a good, helpful reminder, too, that technologies that feel foreign to people who are just even a bit older, like your, your age or my age, um, are native and natural and intrinsic to, to young people. And this was true like when we were growing up. Um, no doubt you were the one who uh, knew how to use a computer better than your parents did. Um, and it's going to be the case for the next generation. Um, the idea of, you know, owning and custodying their own assets, of being their own bank, of, you know, using blockchain technologies is going to be as natural as using the Internet was for you and me or turning on the TV was for our parents. Yeah, and I'm, I'm deeply, I'm very interested in how identity custody plays out and how blockchain serves a role in that being a parent of two young children, just yeah. as yourself, parent. Um, and, and making sure that they know what their identity is worth and where it's being used and how they can obviously <laughs> leverage it if it becomes something um, of uh, that they can transact with, right? Yeah. Um, and we transact with our identity all the time and credit and whatnot. But, um, no, it, it's an interesting down-the-road big idea, and we got to work really hard to try to wrap our minds around it. Well, that's one last, maybe one yeah. last thing to end on, which is that um, there's a big social reason to do things differently um, online. Um, so for the past sort of 20 years, we've basically entered into this bargain where we get access to free services and in exchange we share our data. Uh, and a lot of us entered into this bargain unwittingly, um, but we accepted it because we felt that Facebook and Gmail and other services were useful to us. And I think that that's beginning to change, um, where people's perception is changing, where they realize that far from being free, there's actually an enormous cost. Um, one is lost opportunity. We're not monetizing our own data for our own That's sake. Right. Uh, but the other is the potential harm that could be caused from a violation of our privacy. And I think about this a lot. Like I had a, um, my baby uh, girl, Eleanor, was born two months ago. And I wonder about the kind of world that she's going to inherit, whether or not we're going to continue along this 
to the point where privacy will be dead and we'll basically live in a, you know, corporatist Fishbowl, s- yeah. surveillance society or whether or not there's an opportunity to maybe fix things work, fix things and, and make them work a bit better. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll take the optimistic view. I, I think technology can work to our benefit. We just have to be aware of, of it oh. um, and how to use it. And I agree. I agree completely. No with one that. to deny it too, right? I mean, in the end, it's a, t- you know, technology is a tool, right? Uh, it has no moral agency. It's not good or bad. It depends on how it's wielded. If it's wielded responsibly, it can create huge value and uh, positive change. And so that's um, why I continue to evangelize and to be involved in this industry is because I see blockchain as being foundational to that future. Well, on that positive note, um, we'll wrap. You've given us more than enough time. And I will say that if you want to read more about Alex Tapscott and his ideas, his book's available, Blockchain Revolution, second edition yep. on Amazon.com. Also available as an audio, uh, audio book on Audible. Yep. So if you like listening to podcasts, you, you probably like listening to the book. Though, do you narrate it or I not? don't. Okay, <laughs> you should narrate it. And no, um, for yeah, the, anything for else you want to plug before we... Uh, no, if you're, if you're interested in following me on Twitter, at Alex Tapscott, um, check out also the blockchainresearchinstitute.org. Yep. This is the organization that is supported by dozens of companies and governments that's doing some pretty critical um, work in the space. Now, our research is mostly proprietary to our members, but we have infographics, webinars, and other things that people can uh, check out. And also one other thing, which is that we launched a specialization on Coursera, with INSEAD, which is one of the best business schools in the world, yeah. a full uh, deep dive course on business blockchain. So um, if you have an opportunity, go check that out as well. Wicked. Thanks so much, Alex. Cool. Thanks Cheers. a lot. Hi, it's Grace from the CFC reminding you to make sure to follow us on social media for the latest updates on our listed companies as well as new listing alerts. For more in-depth content, be sure to pick up our free quarterly magazine, Public Entrepreneur, available online at thecsc.com. Thank you.